0: i'm mike gillis and i'm casey doran and this is radio versus the martians this month's single serving
1: selection fight club His name is Casey Doran. His name is Casey Doran. His name is Casey Doran.
0: Oh, <laughs> welcome, everyone. Welcome to Red Pill vs. the Martians.
1: Oh no, no, no! I know we've 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 been a long time since we've done this, but we have not fallen down that pit. Oh, Oh. I don't know if I
2: consented to be on that show.
1: (laughs) No, no, oh! By the way, you are now part of the manosphere, Patrick. No, I knew it would happen eventually. You're on about nine FBI lists now. (laughs) Um, So yes, we are back with another uh, single-serving episode. And yes, this month, we are breaking the first two rules because we are talking about Fight Club. Now, Fight Club was a 1999 film directed by David Fincher, who you'd know from directing Alien 3 and 7, and would later go on to direct Zodiac, the social network, Gone Girl, and The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, and from a screenplay by Jim Oles, who also wrote the screenplay to Jumper, and mostly, aside from that, short films. This is based on a novel by Chuck Palahniuk, and who boy, I really don't know how to feel about this movie, and I hope this conversation will help me figure it out, because uh, this month we've got a returning guest. He's friend of the show, and hopefully uh, a nice balancing uh presence that I hope will make this conversation uh even better. Mr. Patrick Johnson, welcome back to the show, Patrick.
2: Hey hey thanks for having me guys.
1: So Patrick, let's dive right into it. Um if you had to synopsize this movie in like a paragraph or two, what is Fight Club all about?
2: Oh uh a white collar everyman who is alienated from society himself and uh because of his insomnia, even reality finds solace in, in, in community of a bunch of uh, men's groups and support groups before realizing that the greatest support group of him is, uh, fighting with himself <laughs> and, uh, starts a, starts an organization dedicated to men, men being men, and then moves into some, some light terrorism to keep things, keep things spicy. Yeah. Um, this is this was this was a fun ride I, I haven't <laughs> seen this I haven't seen this movie in so long I'm a very different human than I was last time I went through it and even though there's a lot that I can't enjoy in the way that I, I used to the film looks very different I, I thought it was still a pretty fun ride uh, but 2021 20, 20, eyes uh make a lot of things seem pretty different than they did in the past.
0: Yeah, Yeah, the way I the way I describe this to Patrick, Mike, was that this is a millenarian pre social media red pill terrorism manifesto (laughs) that that's that's, with, with some comedy.
1: Yeah, it's I haven't watched this movie in 17 years or so, so it had been a really long time. And this was something that mostly existed in my long term memory. And this was a movie when that came out when I was 20 years old, and I fucking devoured it. I, w- I just, this was a quotable movie. I watched it in the theaters twice, which was not something I did a lot back then. It was one of the first DVDs I ever purchased. And, you know, I've been kind of terrified to revisit it because I love this movie. It was from that time in my life I was kind of discovering film for the first time that I was getting into things like you know Quentin Tarantino movies and the Cohen brothers and M Night Shyamalan and Donnie Darko and Kevin Smith and clearly there are things on that list some of whom have aged way better than others. And when you said this was something you wanted to cover on the show, I have to admit I was kind of terrified.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's that it it comes from that uh, has been dubbed the best movie year ever. It comes from that weird cauldron of amazing uh hollywood produced films the year 1999 that we would have seen movies like star wars episode one and the matrix and being john malkovich and the list is we could go on the list is endless um but it came at a time when there was this because of the rise of the multiplex more screens allowed for there to be basically more niche movies of bigger demographics if you had a 20 screen theater you could afford to put something like fight flight club on one or two of the screens um and it kind of let that and um a democratization of production production money producers there are just so many insane auteur director driven movies and this is one of them i mean what did what did uh, fincher do before this he did
1: seven alien three seven i mean there's a and lot of it. dark that's it kind of edgy movies that are uh, very visually interesting um frequently not just dark in tone but dark visually right and this is obviously
0: a dark visually
1: this this has a
0: dark tone um but the strange part about this is it's a comedy and it is his by uh, is up until his catalog now and i've seen them all it's his funniest movie which, which says something about someone who is a who is self descri- who describes himself as a type of director who likes to depict people
1: doing terrible things to each other in basements. Well, mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> this, this that's the mission statement of this movie. Um, and here here's the thing: it was the perfect movie to come out when I was 20 years old and getting into, and I wanted it was the height of my Edge Lord period where I thought that I was smart and I was a smart cultured film guy and even though I hadn't seen fucking anything at that point that came out before jaws um but I it it was one of those movies that I felt like I was watching cinema and um it's it's a weird thing to look back on because that's that's a time in my life where that, that's a time in a lot of people's lives, but in my life particular, where a lot of your opinions are half-formed and kind of embarrassing. And to go to something that I loved this much, um, I came away with a lot of mixed feelings about it, watching it again. And like you mentioned before, Patrick, you can never really love it the way you did when you first saw it. And there is the hindsight. And I just kind of came away with this movie At times feeling kind of weirdly uncomfortable where I'm like, okay, is this a scathing satire of toxic masculinity and these like MRI style cults of violence and angry, disaffected men who get pulled into this like death cult? Or is it kind of a weird celebration of that and glorification of that? Or is it somewhere in between? And I just, I ping pong back and forth and there's so many things that have happened between 1999 and now that have totally recontextualized so much of this movie. And I don't know how to feel. Pa- Patrick, how'd you feel about it on rewatch?
2: Um, I have this thing where sometimes I'll, I'll read something online or I see a clip that I really, really resonates with me that speaks to some part of me. And then I find out that it's said by the worst people possible. And I, I, I feel the need to distance myself from it emotionally. Um, that, that question of whether this is a send up or, or, or making fun of the men's rights people or whether, uh, I, I know to some extent it doesn't matter because we know that they took this message to heart, that even the expression special snowflake is, is a reference, you know, is taken from this film. Um, and there are parts that I am not comfortable with the fact that they they do speak to me because they're, they're the same parts that in some cases have been used to radicalize people. As speaking to a certain type of, of disaffected white-collar or working-class man with a certain message about their masculinity, and it gets you on board just enough if, you, if you're someone like me, and then you realize... Um, you know, the, the anti-feminist messages, the, the fact that a really uncomfortable amount of the people participating in the Fight Club and Project Mayhem are just white males that all look basically the same, uh, that there are parts that I've, I find just a little bit alluring or a little bit interesting. And then I, with my 2021 20, eyes, I think about how other people who might connect to those same images, uh, the, the dark, dark road that it's that it's led them on.
1: Yeah, that's the thing I found is that I finished watching this and I immediately looked up videos about it on YouTube because I wanted to say, okay, there's clearly people who became adults after this movie was like 15 to 20 years old. And I want to know how they're processing it. And oh, my God, this movie is like the king of misdirected fandom. At least I want to believe is misdirected fandom. So I would see these videos from people that have titles like, and this is an actual one, Fight Club, Nietzsche, and the Crisis of Masculinity. And it's basically just regurgitating the sort of gospel of Tyler Durden, where it's taking this sort of stuff to heart. And this is a movie that definitely came in that, that wave of the late 90s. And it's a much more radical version of something that I would call the white guy on we film where the white guy on we film and American beauty is probably the most um, notorious example of this is it a lot of these sort of happened in the 90s. But it was usually the lead is sort of this upper middle class white guy who has a high paying white collar job usually a a really amazing aspirational home. And they're sort of intangibly sad about something in their life. There's something that they feel like they haven't gotten the world that media uh, promised them. And they react to this by kind of rebelling and breaking social norms and kind of becoming adolescents again. And by not giving a fuck, there's this kind of liberation of them pissing off the normies. And taking back their sense of individuality and masculinity.
0: It's the same. It honestly, it's the same setup for two other notable movies from 1999. One being The Matrix, and the other being Office Space. It's a, yeah. It is a. It's it is a. It's a common theme from that same era because the filmmakers from that era that were sort of er, early Gen Xers, sort of white men, were tapping into um, disaffection. I mean, I. I Oh, only only many many years later, uh, when I was introduced to David Foster Wallace, did uh, was I I think I can't remember. He did like a commencement speech at a university, and it's a oh, it's a this is, this is water. It's yes, this is water, and he talks about the void. Um, and so you know, David Foster Wallace is not someone who for whom I think the Jordan Peterson set would sort of you know, seize upon his works to look for reasons to become more of a selfish bigot. Um, but I mean, his big point about his big lecture to these uh, or advice to the graduates is you have to be careful because there are all these ways in which society has told us that this is where you're supposed to go. And most people enter middle age feeling this void about like, I went where they told me I was supposed to go. And now there's nothing here. Um yeah. and so that's a that's that is a setting aside the masculinity point uh which is obviously such a fucking huge part of this movie um mm-hmm. the the germane part is that people of a certain age especially the Gen Xers who had sort of maybe came out came as teenagers in the late 80s or early 90s and were into the workforce and approaching their 30s we're thinking like this is fucked. Like yeah. we, the baby boomers, still control everything. Um, the work that we're doing is essentially meaningless. Um, the Gen Xers had already been the the generation for whom they couldn't be marketed to, right? Because they because they were at least aware enough culturally to understand that marketing is marketing. Um, so that the whole message of the the sort of intensely curated society, a uh, consumer society was already at least uh, had to at least be taken ironically if you were from there so I think it I think it at least signals to people some kind of a some kind of a real you know itch in the brain uh, of people who are of that age I also think that uh, this is one point in its favor and probably the reason why I, I I was attracted to it when I first saw it was is that there is a there is a very deep sort of Marxist, um revolutionary idea at its root right they never use the word capitalism but for sure this movie fairly well advocates that the society that's based around making us work so we can spend and buy things we don't need um because we think that will make us amazing is a lie
1: yeah, it is a lie. I can I can definitely agree with you on that. They don't say capitalism, but the, the pressures of capitalism, the alienation you have at work because you're not making anything for yourself and you're not keeping most of the money. Uh, there's no sort of meaning in that, in that the idea of trying to build yourself a personality through buying things and that for all his desire to try to find all these neat, unique, quirky little things out of an Ikea catalog, ultimately they're all mass produced things. And that a million people own. Um, But all of those realities have gotten so much worse because the people who feel that sort of alienation nowadays.
0: Fandoms. (laughs) Yeah, they don't (laughs) live
1: in an apartment with a uniformed doorman. Um, they don't have the sort of life they have where there's much greater economic pressures on people now. We mentioned this before talking about The Simpsons. Guys like Homer Simpson don't get to own a home nowadays, let alone be able to support three kids off a single income. So there's a part of it where you just kind of get angry at him. And I kind of grouse a little bit at it being quite Marxist. I think that the, the the soil is is germinated for Marxism. Yeah. But I think there's this weird kind of nihilistic response to it where they don't really get in this movie angry at the right things. They're certainly angry at the commercialism. But the 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 key argument that Travis or I almost said Travis Bickle, it seems like we're kind of <laughs> pulling from the same kind of lineage of these kind of outcast weirdo hero characters. But the 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 arguments in the, the gospel of Tyler Durden isn't so much that um, we're alienated because of capitalism and that we're depowered and sort of exhausted by this world that values things more than human life, because that's literally what the narrator, the, the unnamed narrator played by Ed Norton's job is, is yeah. to look at crash sites of cars for an auto company and determine whether it's economically feasible for them to have to change the car to prevent future car accidents basically basically turning tragedies into numbers that they can tabulate and to make these cold-blooded decisions about like a horrible life of changing tragedy. Um, But Tyler Durden isn't really angry at that. He's not angry at people being depowered. There's more of this anger that, I don't get to be the special winner. It's not that I'm angry about a society where people lose and are depowered and there's a few bunch of people, whether it's a capitalist class or whatever, that get to make all the decisions and ram all this garbage down our brain uh, through, you know, advertising. I'm angry that I don't get to be one of those winners. I was promised to be a rock star and a very special person and a millionaire and a movie star. And I didn't get it. I'm not angry that everyone was denied this. I'm angry that I was denied this. Uh, so I'm going to create a reality where I do have people waiting on me and barking back my my dogma at me. And his argument with a lot of commercialism, and he says that with the definition of, you know, what is a duvet? And he says – and Ed Norton goes, well, it's a comforter. And he goes, it's a blanket. Why should a guy like me in a hunter-gatherer sense know what that is? And you sort of see this element throughout where it's more that commercialism makes us pussies. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a very different argument. So, it, so and-
0: it, I mean, let I mean, let's start with the beginning of the movie because uh, it's as as I was. This is the phrase that I came up with. This movie punches down before it starts punching itself. Um, yeah. The beginning of this movie is, and in the commentary, Venture says when you see the people like crying and the montage for the uh for the self help groups, that's when the audience is either going to. Think that uh this is a, this is some, something that's worthy of being funny, or when the audience is going to walk out because at the, yeah. at the very beginning they're effectively making light of people who cancer are cancer survivors, yeah, people in a support who are group. at the most vulnerable parts of their lives, who are looking to find human connection to you know find a light in the dark. And the first, and of course, the first thing that he does is make a joke out of emasculated men. Literally emasculated men, men with no yes. brain, with no balls. Um, and so it's the ha ha, look at these look at these guys sort of moment. Um, and sort of the narrator selfishly robs um those guys of some of their
1: healing. To sort of serve his own purposes, right? So it's it's worth mentioning that the, a big part of the plot is that the main character who never gets named, Ed Norton, the narrator. Let's call him it, Cornelius. <laughs> Cornelius. That's yeah. his name in the, the one of the fake names that he uses. But he he is an insomniac and he can't sleep. Um, that he stays up at night and orders things out of Ikea catalogs and just kind of sleepwalks through his day. He's miserable. Um The movie's shot in such a way where there's a lot of uncorrected neon lighting that just makes everything sickly green. This movie just feels gross a lot of the time. And you really, especially during these opening scenes, he's an insomniac and he finds that he can only sleep if he goes to support groups for people with incurable diseases. And in the arms of another stranger, he just starts crying about his life. He doesn't have the same disease they have. But he just has a person hold him and he cries that – and this is an interesting thing is that his tears are not a lie. And he's not – he's using these people selfishly, but he in a weird way is getting out of this what they're trying to get out of this. Yeah. And it's also something that when you get later in the movie to the actual fight club starting – you see these parallels and there's this idea from Tyler Durden that the support groups, that's the pussy way to do it. That we're a generation of men raised by women and the idea of, you know, affirmation and vulnerability is this lame way that kind of breaks us down and takes our masculinity away. And that Fight Club, the idea that two guys go into a basement under a bar, beat the shit out of each other and afterwards hold each other and cry, Um, gets them that same emotional reaction. But the means of doing it is physically, literally self-destructive.
2: I want to stick on this point of the, 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 when he first starts going to the support groups, there's something I noticed he claims. uh, So he's been unable to sleep. And after the support group, he can sleep. And he says that he finds freedom in losing all hope. But I would suggest you're never shown a single friend that Cornelius has before his Fight Club days, or else they yes. might have noticed that you know he has no one to call when his apartment burns down, uh, except for Tyler Durden. And he goes to a support group, and what he finds is human connection. He finds people, he, he is given a hug, he's given a space for emotional intimacy and physical touch, and he breaks down because he has been so isolated in his normal life. Uh, and he takes the wrong message from it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but for me, it's it's that need for for tribe. Uh, there's a... Later on, he, he writes a little poem that his boss finds that I keep thinking about, which uh, his boss finds the worker bees can leave, even drones can fly away the queen is their slave.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Still my favorite part about the movie, by the way.
2: (laughs) Uh, So first of all, we get the little uh, anti-women dig that we had to get in there, but it's also, in in an important sense, human beings evolved as tribes, just as bees evolved as colonies, and that realistically, people are isolated within the conditions of of modern life. and, And Cornelius appears to be especially so. And what he finds the beginning of his salvation is a little bit of community. Uh, and then, like the alt-right tends to, he has a discontent that is real. He has a frustration or a problem that is real. And then he just takes it in uh, say, a radical direction, takes the wrong yeah. lesson from it.
1: Yeah, and it's, it's interesting to note also, this is another one of those elements of a movie that could only be made in the late 90s, not only because just two years later, it would be impossible to make a movie that ends with skyscrapers coming down and right. explosions. <laughs> right. But it's this movie that takes place in this area of our history where there seemed to be this kind of, you know, declared neoliberal win in like the cold war that we are the last surviving world power and that we are at the end of history and they actually say this in Fight Club: you know, that we have no great war, we have no great depression. As if the only way that we can have a sense of of our own masculinity, the only way that we can have a sense of identity and purpose, is through death and conflict yeah. and tragedy. I
0: mean, doesn't doesn't Tyler Durden doesn't Tyler Durden tip his hand to this later when they're asking each other who would you rather fight, and he says Hemingway? It seems to me it's very much it's this not a new idea. It is it is just a recycled Ernest Hemingway idea.
1: Yeah, and how did that end up for Ernest Hemingway? <laughs> I mean, as a communist probably, spy? <laughs> just like the narrator, there's a gun in his mouth right. and it's 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 not it's not a healthy way to live and it it's very probably clear that Ernest Hemingway had a lot of the same fucking problems. Um and at least he got to write some books out of it where this guy's just <laughs> leaving poetry is original in the copier at work and, you know, it's and again, it's another of those those little things. Um, I think this movie came out the same year as the Columbine shooting. Yes, it. Um, it, it uh, I don't know if it came out before or after. That was in like April, I think, April ninety nine. They had to delay it because of that. Yes, yep. Because there's a moment where his boss finds the rules of Fight Club in, in the copier he left because he's a guy who still probably sleeps a couple hours a night and he's getting increasingly disheveled and broken. Um, he's gotten to the point that he can't have any kind of human normal interaction with anybody who's not a part of fight club, who's another horribly bruised, angry, disaffected person. It's not like this is making them better or happier It's just making them part of a secret club where the shibboleth is a bruised face and a weird nod and an understanding that you're doing awful things to people. And and it's it's that same kind of idea because when he, he gets that uh he finds the rules of fight club the boss is like hey look pretend you're me make a make a management decision what am i supposed to i see this what am i supposed to do and he basically gets up and without doing it overtly basically threatens to shoot up the office yeah and then brushes it off with or maybe you shouldn't bring me every piece of trash you find and it's weird to look at that through a 2020 lens. Um, I can't watch that with the same feeling I had where I giggled at that when I was 20 years old, because that felt like a much more absurd scenario. The idea of the, you know, a masculinity gang turned terrorist group, um, committing acts of violence on the street or vandalism, um, that felt like a much more absurd thing. The, the satire of this was much more pronounced. It was so obviously ridiculous in 1999 in a way that it really isn't now. Um, and, but again, that idea, the end of history, you know, that this is all we have. I have to sort of create these petty ways to, to deal with this. I'm not getting anything life affirming. I'm not building anything that's supportive or allows me to be vulnerable. Um, It's just something where I get to be another kind of drone to another kind of leader. And there's this nihilism there that if this was like a true Marxist track, instead of pulling people up, it's more of you're just going to become my drones that I get to be in charge of this new system. And you get to live on bunk beds in matching clothes with buzz cuts in my basement of this house that has to smell like mold constantly that is falling apart in a, as they refer to it, the toxic waste part of town. And you get to do menial chores, and occasionally if certain things are asked of you, there's just an understanding that this is some kind of gaslighting test, and you have to respond with the right parent response. Or, I don't know what the consequences are, because there's several times that he literally just doesn't understand the big twist of the story yet, um, and goes, what the hell is going on? And they just jump into this sort of military pose and go, in Project Mayhem, you do not ask questions, sir. And-
2: I love how they get to anarchy through fascism. It's <laughs> <Yes. laughs> like this really, really rigid order. But the, the question, I think th- there's a lot of class struggle and frustration uh, that are at the heart of what they are building. But the question is, what are they building towards? Yeah. And there's only one part in the entire movie as far as I can tell where they actually discuss the goal of Project Mayhem and, and the, the whole empire and he discusses uh, a group of basically hunter-gatherers growing corn in the shadows of the ruins of civilization. Um, I don't know, like, you're not you're not going to get there first of all without mass human extermination but yeah. it's also the world that you profess to want it's, it's primitivist and that it in no way resembles what it is that you're actually building uh, no. that their focus is, is just, is just destruction uh, yeah. for its own sake.
1: And that's the thing too, is that it, this is seems to be like the political project of the worst people in history, which is how do I take being the worst person in the world and try to turn it into something aspirational and noble. And really it feels like this is the same sort of, I mean, cause really in Tyler Durden, the Brad Pitt character Um, I see the prototype for every cinematic version of the Joker that we have gotten since. Mm. Where if you especially look at the Heath Ledger version from Dark Knight, um, I see the exact same thing. And, you know, the question of what is this character's ideology? What do they expect to accomplish? What are they trying to do? And you see a lot of contradictions. In the Joker, I see somebody who pretends to be crazy, but seems to be just a terrible, sane person who doesn't care if they live or die, who doesn't care if they get hurt. And they try to pretend that there's this big philosophical point they're trying to make when really all they're doing is being shitty to other people because it's funny.
0: Yeah. And I think that you're right. I think that the things of if it has a political political philosophy, it's not clear. And also, I mean, there's a point the point when he's doing the chemical burn where he's effectively, I guess, the character's doing it to himself, but he's trying to like, keep having this thing where the only the only way you can achieve enlightenment is by hitting bottom, right? Is by letting go. Mm-hmm. And what I assume is, is reaching a point where you're close enough to death that you're focusing on the only thing that matters. But, I mean, Tyler Durden has this rant about um, you know, who is God, but he's a negligent father, right? He doesn't care about us. He hates us. We're his forgotten children, essentially. And I, as a, as a sort of, as a theological reach to this story, that also doesn't make any sense. Um, if, if, uh, if God is the forgotten father, then it's just an expression of the narrator who is Tyler Durden's own, distance from his own father and therefore the theology doesn't mean anything he's just he's just transposing a his own personal relationship there so for for all of its pretension the, the movie's pretension about having something to say apart from the thing that's probably the most obvious and the thing that could most easily be fit into cut into a trailer which is like consumerism stinks and everyone knows it um it's it is so unfocused as to be embarrassing
1: Yeah, there's there's more of this petulant, childish reaction to it where I'm just going to give – the world is broken, so I'm just going to break parts of it for the lulls. And ideologically, like you mentioned, this sort of nihilistic, anti-corporate, hyper-masculine primitivism. But like you mentioned, Patrick, I don't know how they get from point A to point B because their point A is doing things like I get a job at a restaurant and I pee in the soup – I splice uh, single frames of pornography into children's films. Um, I'm knocking. Um, I'm erasing all the tapes in a video store. There is no destruction of civilization. I'm I'm vandalizing a sign that implies that the, um, what was that? You you know, like the the EPA sign, uh, the public service announcement that's like, oh, did you know you can use used motor oil to fertilize your lawn? <laughs> right, uh, right, which was kind of funny, but I mean. There's this part of it where I think the audience gets this kind of, kind of um, vicarious power fantasy from the idea of I'm going to break norms. And I get on a gut level, especially when I was young, that the sort of empowerment you get from not giving a shit about other people. But it doesn't feel like they're building anything. They're not revolutionaries because there's this world that they all want to live in. They barely even talk about it. And you even see at the beginning the way they build these guys up and then break them into nothing. Like he's, uh, Tyler Durden says at a fight club meeting, you know, basically these underground boxing support groups. Where they beat the shit out of each other, he says, I see in Fight Club the strongest and smartest men who ever lived. And then later, when they're pro- part of Project Mayhem and they're doing like manual labor in the back of his house and making soap for his soap company, <laughs> he says, This, he says literally this, you are not special. You are not a beautiful and unique snowflake. You are the same decaying organic matter as everything else. We are the all singing, all dancing crap of the world. We are all part of the same compost heap. And it just, I mean, that's how cults work. They love bomb you. And then they tell you that you're nothing. And... That part of it is super accurate, but I mean, these movies always kind of go, the formula is you get pulled and you, the audience, get seduced at the same way that the narrator is into this world, and then there's a splash of water that you go, oh my God, this is insane, what am I a part of? But I don't really understand what it is that gives him that splash of water. I I really don't get it, because it never really feels like the movie has anything to say other than, oh my God, he's going to blow up these empty buildings with these credit card servers in it. But how is that any worse aside from like the cost of the damage he's going to do than stuff that the narrator basically participated in and had no problem? I I don't understand. He was they assaulted the police commissioner and threatened to cut his balls off in a bathroom. Um Ed Norton's character locks the door for them as they go in there. He doesn't really have a problem with any of this. He's part of All sorts of shit, but it's only in the moments when either someone he likes personally gets hurt or, you know, he might personally be affected by pee in his soup at a restaurant Um, or, you know, because to me, and again, this is, I'm not more conservative than I was when I was 20 years old. If anything, it's the opposite. Um, Them blowing up empty buildings with people's credit card records in it is some of the least objectionable shit that I think (laughs) they do.
2: Uh, I did want to point out that that is the, pretty much the exact plot of season one of Mr. Robot, is that a man with multiple personality sin- sin- uh, disorder takes down the public debt record. Uh, the difference is that in Mr. Robot, there's a season two where there's a fallout from this, and it ends up, although it was supposed to be a strike at the evil corporate empire, uh, ends up hurting real people through the economic damage that it uh that it inflicts and doesn't really achieve the ends that the protagonist thought it would. Uh, whereas here, interestingly, the book ends differently. The the idea that the credit card companies in the buildings all going down uh, was something that was specific to the to the film. Um, but yeah, how does it how does it get you closer to to any of the things that you've been talking about this this entire movie other than It's a strike against the corporate world, who are one of the... I guess there's sort of two antagonists uh, in this film that all this rage is directed at. One is just corporations in general, uh, and then the other is the wealthy, who depend upon the working class that join the fight clubs. Uh, You'll notice that the people who make up, when he's traveling around the country, trying to seek out where fight clubs have been built up, they're always composed of like restaurant staffs and... Uh, just blue-collar co- blue people from around. And so there is this deep sense of it being a classist struggle.
1: Um, yeah, but it feels the same way that fascism will typically take the sort of pressures that might turn somebody into a leftist and instead hijack that. And then say, oh, no, it's actually this kind of angry, regressive, reactionary response that you need to have, where you're essentially attacking innocent people, but thinking that you're building this better world when all you're really doing is empowering this totalitarian monster. Um, it It isn't a, a leftist response. But again, what did the Nazis call themselves? They basically – the german national socialist party so they're using a word that they're the opposite of and people frankly they round it up (laughs) you know that's really what tyler does he's acting like he's doing something populist but he's really not because there's never a sense that he gives a shit about people
2: he's just building a cult of personality exactly Uh, it it is ultimately isn't it's the crisis here is a crisis of meaning uh in the same way where i get the marxist part is marx talked about the the alienation of a worker who is working towards something that's not their act, their own product that someone else you're working towards someone else's end someone else's what someone else is building and ultimately towards someone else's wealth and one of the parts that I do find compelling is the idea that you're born into a world that you don't get to own in some meaningful sense and that the meaning has already been purchased spent it's, it's been bought out I do in the beginning of the movie he's talking about when Corporate. When we go to corporations, go to space. They're going to start naming everything. We're going to have planet Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there there is something there is something lost there. There is something that I feel in me a desire to, to strike back at. Um, the difference is I have empathy as a person. I guess like, is what keeps me from being you know falling for Tyler Durden. As you know, this is the this is the difference in. He has a line at some point where after he's been following Tyler for a really long time, and he says, I don't know if sardonically or not, he says, I used to be such a nice guy. Yeah. And it's like, at no, at no point does he really demonstrate empathy for a single other living human
1: being, except for maybe Marla at the end. At the end. Yeah. He treats her like shit for most of the movie. Yeah, I mean, uh, if we want to get into the character of Marla so, Singer. So
0: let's talk about that. I mean, that was one of my notes for sure, because there are a few female characters but the only really one that matters which is marla and the tip off is the generation of men raised by women right Mm -hmm. like it's this it's this very much a a a the deep distrust of women and i guess the modern equivalent would be like the um involuntary celibates you know like the, the that kind of for whom the women are the enemy um, because they they don't they don't give me what I actually need. I think that if you were to cast, if you were to have to write a different scene, this there's, there's a scene that doesn't happen in the, in this movie that they deliberately chose to not include because they didn't want to make the character that evil. What would it be if Marla tried to join the Fight Club? <laughs> uh, and you know the answer would essentially be is that they would beat her up and eject her, right? Or yeah. or they might there might be a scene of implied or direct sexual assault um, because the, the implication is essentially is that um, we're in this free space. Like when you're in fight club, you're in this fucking free space and the rules don't apply and expressing your masculinity is like the, is, is like the reason why you're here being able to have unfettered sort of space to be a man. And I, obviously the movie does that because it would become a completely different parable by the end if they didn't um, but I don't know what's your what is your take on the, your guys's take on the character Marla because I think it's it's handled with kid gloves because they have to have a date movie character <laughs> so women who are going with their boyfriends will have some kind of a character to relate to
1: I think if you look at the treatment of Marla by the main character by the narrator it's there's this petulant kind of pre-adolescent misogyny that he has towards her and it, it's almost always a sense of anger or jealousy or what are you doing in the boys' club that he always has, because at the beginning, she's somebody who starts showing up at these support groups that he goes to cry at, and he can't cry when she's there because he can tell she's a faker too, because what is the first place she goes to? Testicular cancer. And he just sits and glares at her, and he fantasizes about ways he's going to grab her and scream in her face and tell her to get out, and he just, he's like, stewing on it and he goes if i had a tumor i'd name it marla and he's just and then later when she starts hooking up with tyler um they basically just have angry crazy dirty sex in a room that he doesn't see and at that point he's just angry at her because to him she's stealing tyler away from him that she's stealing attention away from him that he's entitled to why are you why is a girl ruining my thing this is my thing why is she here and even when both him and Tyler are alone together, they talk about her like she's trash. Like, eh, get rid of her. Why is she doing here? And it's really weirdly uncomfortable watching it now. There is this kind of, this sort of ugliness to it where he mostly acts sort of annoyed, even when it's clear that she's on the phone with him and took too many sleeping pills. And it's like a failed suicide attempt. Um, he's happy to just let her die. And it's only because Tyler goes over there um, that she lives. And who knows why Tyler went over there. But, you know, it's I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it because it just from her point of view, this movie is fucking bonkers. And it's her being gaslit by this guy who hooks up with her and then screams at her to get out of his house. Because, again, we've danced around it, but the twist of this movie is, of course, and this was a much more shocking thing in 1999, that Tyler Durden is an alternate personality of the narrator, that he occasionally slips into this other person, Uh, usually, and it sort of implied that it started happening once he went to support groups and started sleeping, he wouldn't really fall to sleep, he'd just become Tyler, and uh, live out this other life, living in this shithole house, Um, having other strange jobs and doing all this stuff and eventually forming a cult. And this weird sort of need he has that he makes this father figure that he's desperate to win the approval of. Mm. And he's even jealous of this woman that's coming in and is literally sleeping with him, but is sleeping with his other self.
2: He actually, he makes them his parents when he's talking about how they're never in the same room. He says his parents played the same trick. And he, his response to them is sort of a as a petulant child in in those scenarios. I will say Hel- Helena Bohemgarter Carter did a great job as, as mm-hmm. Marla. I thought she was really compelling. Uh, the the character is just is, is interestingly just as uh, self centered and lacking in human compassion and as pretty much everyone else in the in the film. Um, I would, I did want to say I watched this movie with uh, with my girlfriend who's never who had never seen it before. Oh. And maybe, maybe just because it's not, you know, the idea that he is also Tyler is a little bit more done at this point, but she figured out, she, she figured out the big twist when he, he said to Marla, Tyler's not here. And the look on her face, the confusion was enough for her to figure it out.
0: Oh, Um, good acting. Very good acting.
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I certainly, I didn't, I can't say I guessed it the, when the first time I saw it in the theater. Uh, it was, I, it's one of those movies, it's so cliche now, but that twist and that moment where you are reconfiguring all the relationships in your head based on the new paradigm uh, was, it, well, it was, it was a mindfuck when I was, however old I was when I saw this movie. Uh, but now it's, it, it seems so obvious. It's almost like, how could you not see it coming? Well, exactly. I, yeah, I
0: I think that I wrote this down because I think there was definitely some... Type of ways in which this movie defined a set of film fashions, um, and and this is a bold statement, but I think it was on par with like, you know, Matrix or Star Wars or like Vertigo, where there were some st- some sort of visual or some storytelling conventions that were effectively mainstreamed by this movie um, mm-hmm. because of what it ch- what it chose to do. And I was like the the sort of fourth wall breaking where you're literally seeing the character on a strip of film that's vibrating um it being a meta film like when t- the when the narrator's explaining cigarette burns mm-hmm. as you're watching this film and we're explaining what the film is uh the unreliable narrator bit and also th- that thing that the digital the digital domain was the effects uh, house that did um, the opening credits and all the times when you have that cool macro vision where you have a CGI that goes in and does you know, basically everything that they did in Ant-Man, <laughs> right, is <Yeah. laughs> you, have, you have a computer be able to go to teeny tiny spaces and make them look cavernous and huge. Those are things that this movie did that, you know, have are still being used in films from here on out. So um, and the other point that I'll say is I, I, I read the book uh, Best Movie Year Ever, um, which is a book about the films of 1999. And so they sort of talked about how this movie came together. And then, of course, by the end of the chapter, they're talking about the difficulty of getting it released. And uh, Hollywood Reporter called it absolutely indefensible and depl- <laughs> and deplorable on every level. <laughs> um, wow! And this is the thing that I'll say that regardless of how it reads 22 years later, um, there is something amazing when a piece of expensive corporate art is able to get away with something, and yeah. this absolutely got away with something, especially in the wake of like when they were preparing it, the the date, like you know <laughs> Columbine happens, and and then the entire our entire culture shifts around depictions of media and how impressionable teenagers might use violent media uh, and, and lash out against their own communities. Um, it is insane. That this movie ended up getting released, ended up having, uh, you know, huge stars in it, and is a part of the film lexicon. And I love it when I can watch a movie, when I can see a movie that is clearly getting away with something. The only movie from that time that I can think of, I I kind of felt like South Park the movie was another, um, was another movie around that time where at while I was watching it, I was like, I cannot believe they let them release this. Um, yeah. But I and, and unfortunately South Park is not a, not good bedfellows, right? The the edge lord yeah. edge of South Park now, in retrospect, is just as juvenile and ridiculous. But I I have to appreciate how fucking risky it was to be able to do this. And even though this movie bombed this uh, in the theaters, how it had its own life and had its its own reach into films beyond. And if you if you guys want to. Any of our listeners want to watch sort of like the the t- 21st century counterpart to this? There was a movie that came out a couple of years ago called The Art of Self Defense. That is effect- oh. effectively this movie cast the the, the 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 larger theme of this movie about um, violence and self improvement. I think it's Michael Sarah. Wait, who's the one no, that, Who's I th- the one that's... I thought it was Jesse, oh, Jesse Eisenberg. Eisenberg. God damn it, I can never tell the difference between those two I think two he's guys. the
1: Earth 2 version <laughs> of Michael Sarah. <Cera. laughs>
0: yes. Yeah, I think I think Eisenberg is the main character of that, uh, and it is absolutely worth a watch as a companion piece to this. And also, how would you do effectively the same theme story with, looking back over the years... Um, I I think it's I still think that it's worthwhile I mean I'd like to hear you hear Mike say something positive about it considering this is now this has been the litany
1: of what the things about the film Mike finds problematic um, I, I don't want to be that guy I don't want to be the guy that scolds it I think that there are parts of this movie that it's, it's really brilliantly acted I'll say that it's visually stunning uh, you mentioned the fashion sense the the way that Tyler Durden dresses is always amazing Where he has like a red leather jacket and he's wearing like a button up sheer shirt that seems to be a collage of pornography. Um, Or he has that amazing bathrobe. It's like his pink bathrobe with coffee mugs on it. But I think it's the same thing. Everything he wears in this movie feels like something that someone will try to wear themselves and it will just not work. Because ultimately, these are all clothes being worn by Brad Pitt. (laughs) And it's like, again, the jacket from the movie Drive that everyone tried to wear after that movie came out. The silver, you know, silk jacket with the um, scorpion embroidered on the back where everyone tried. And you go, no, just don't, 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 don't try to wear that because you're not Ryan Gosling. That's what made it look cool. Um, I think I was talking to uh, my girlfriend Piper about this and she just went, oh yeah, that you can try to wear those clothes, but those clothes will wear you. <laughs> and it's, you know, I I don't hate this movie. Um, there's just a lot of my uncomfortability. The reason that I'm going to that place now is there are certain things that just hit differently, not just to the world, you know. You know, somebody who's complaining about how much they hate their super fancy apartment that they have off of their blue, their white collar job in a world where there's way more homeless tents on the ground. And, you know, terrorism hits differently after nine 11. You're like, Oh boy, two years. And they never would have made the movie end this way. Um, I've had, you know just specific to myself i've you know just through this last year living in in pandemic world have gone through both depression and insomnia um i have had a diagnosis of testicular cancer so that part of the movie hit really weird when i watched it this yeah, time yeah um not only because it made me think a lot about how and again this is kind of like our friend uh Becky Friedman talking about how The fact that she's actually a linguist gets in the way of her enjoying the movie Arrival in the way that (laughs) non-linguists just love it. Um, I know too much about testicular cancer now for for certain things to not hit me wrong and going, it really doesn't spread from one testicle to another. You know, that's not really how that works. (laughs) But also remembering that you know, treatment for that stuff is very different in the year 1999 than now. That I was super lucky to get it in 2019. Um, when you look at the sort of horrible surgeries that people like Tom Green and, and, um, oh, what is his name? The bicycle guy,
0: Lance Armstrong?
1: Lance Armstrong. Yeah. yeah the live strong guy. Um, they had way more advanced cancer than I did, but it just, you know, the way they talk about it in that support group, and I'm like, isn't this one of the more treatable kinds of cancers? Maybe it <laughs> wasn't in 1999. Um, I've never needed a support group, despite the fact that I had moments of sheer existential terror. Um, but, I mean, all that aside, I, I don't hate this movie. So, I guess it seems like we're kind of getting close to it. So, I guess we'll just get to the final question. Is Fight Club worth your time? Patrick?
2: I had fun going back to it. I think that they're for, for all of the ways that are, that are problematic and for all of the issues that you can pull out about it and all the things that hit differently, I think it sparks some interesting ideas, and some interesting conversations. And as you say, just for the, just, you know, for Brad Pitt with his shirt off, right? Like just for the price of admission, uh, you get some really, uh, I think it's, it's still, it's still a ride. Um, and I I had got fun going along on it, um, yeah. So I, I think Fight Club is for me absolutely still worth going through. I think it sparks a lot of interesting uh, interesting ideas. And there is for the people who maybe take this took this movie in the wrong way. I, I end up thinking about. I was listening to a podcast or so someone talking about radical groups are often people who don't have the three basic Con, sort of consumer needs of security, dignity, and hope. And that these group of people, maybe they just needed to get out and get some exercise. And uh, so I just I, I think it's hilarious. I think it's a funny movie and the jokes aren't always in the places that it was last time that I saw it. I think it's really uh, crazy how these people who are alienated within a hyper um, individualistic society found the answer that they needed in a combat-oriented uh, commune and cult of personality. That, you know, as our, as our friend uh, Jordan Peterson says that uh, <laughs> the answer for, his answer for how people get a sense of meaning is through personal responsibility. Uh, I don't, my issue with it at this point is that I don't, there's no center for me. I think when I saw it the first time that I related enough to Cornelius to be able to see things through his eyes, and now there isn't anyone in the movie that I can ride along with. Uh, that the lack the lack of empathy makes it difficult for me to uh, view these people as anything other than the other. Uh, it's in, in 2021 where we can't, it's, it's so difficult to get along with people from, from a radically different uh, side of things. I, I identify these people as the toxic part of men's rights movements. Mm-hmm. And there's a conversation that I want to be able to have here, but uh, it, it's so touchy. And uh, ultimately the parts that I relate to the most are the parts that I'm most uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, but for all, for all of that, it, I, I had a, I had a good time going back to it and I appreciate you guys having me on to, to, to go through it.
0: Yeah. Uh, not a problem. And I, I, Mike, I'd say, um, that it's, this is, I view it that you could got kind of view this movie in the same way that you would watch gone with the wind. I think this is an incredibly watchable movie for a two hour and 20 minute film that does not seem like you're, you're spending two, two, almost two and a half hours watching it. Um, it had the same i i remember at the time that the thing that i was the most skeptical about was the film's sort of central idea which is the central idea was is that there was sort of self liberation through violence through some some sort of like release valve through violence and i thought like well maybe the maybe people of the world do need a fight club but it can't be fighting Um, and, and my only thought, and my thought really hasn't changed. It's just that looking at it now on top of all the other things where Tyler Durden should be talking the next breath where he talks about the things you own end up owning you. The next thing should be like, I also have a bunker and immigrants are the problem and come (laughs) and look at my rifles. Like those should be the next thing that he starts talking about. Um, the thing that I th- thought was like maybe this is just a story about head trauma because of course the narrator is getting a healthy amount of brain damage for every Saturday night that he goes out. I uh, it it is it still has this insane frenetic motion that that moves it. So, for something about the the Dust Brothers soundtrack to me was so cool back then, and it still is the most interesting part of the movie. To me, I think because it it totally creates this like hyper real um, sort of like it would have been it would have been like cutting edge back then. Right. This sort of electronica score soundtrack as opposed to the sort of boring um, string orchestra or orchestral soundtracks you've had before. Something about it just seems like it is singular and special. It, that is a yeah. special snowflake. Um, and I still think that to be true. But like I said, maybe it's a kind of a movie that needs uh, needs a panel discussion after it, just like on with the Wind, to talk about the and contextualize it uh, and not let it become a thing that lets bad ideas fester.
1: Yeah, I came away with this and especially this conversation saying, I think this absolutely is a movie that's worth your time. I think it's a movie to grapple with. Uh, not only because you get to see a lot of really great actors, uh, Brad Pitt, Edward Norton, Helena Bonham Carter, even Meatloaf, <laughs> who, uh, if you're not familiar with Meatloaf Kids, um, his music career is essentially if I tried to be Fabio. Um, <laughs> he basically looks like me as an Ann Rice character, but he has like a flat top in this movie. Uh, and, um, But, I mean, you get to see these people very early on in their career. You see Brad Pitt at a time, I think it was this, and 12 Monkeys, he's really trying to break away from the beautiful heartthrob guy and play these characters that are frequently kind of repulsive. And it's kind of cool to see him stretch. And you see how talented these people really are in this movie. Um, It's beautifully shot. It feels gross. The movie frequently seems like it has a smell. Yeah, Um, yeah. Where there's just... You kind of smell a mildewy, gross sweat. Like, they even talk about it. That sort of, like, room-temperature hot dog smell mixed with blood that you frequently kind of have in this movie. Um, I still can't tell you whether or not this movie glorifies the character of Tyler Durden or condemns him because I think, ultimately, this movie is very sloppy and doesn't quite stick the landing at the end for why he turns on that guy. And it's not because... You know, I'm this, you know, you know, repressed conservative scold. I spent a good portion of last year cheering on the burning down of a police station in Minneapolis. So I am not a person who's like, oh, my God, I can't believe this thing, you know, encourages blah, blah, blah. I'm not that guy. Um, But I also kind of wonder, is this movie this prescient, biting uh, satire of toxic male violence that sort of guessed and predicted the world of the alt-right QAnon incel Nazi mass shooter type guys? Or is it just enjoying reveling in that stuff so much that it forgets to condemn it in a convincing enough way that these guys miss the point of what it's doing? Um, I don't know. And I think that makes for a movie that's worth arguing about, because I don't think the movie is either one of those things that I mentioned. I think it's somewhere in between. I think it condemns it, but not enough to not say how cool it is when Brad Pitt pees in your soup.
2: <laughs> and
1: <laughs> that's the part. It says this is a grimy, ugly movie where the people who have beaten up faces kind of look like the cancer survivors at the beginning. And there's a lot of interesting artistic choices. And I think it's worth fighting over. I really do think this movie is is worth visiting. Occasionally, it'll make you laugh and then make you uncomfortable at what you laughed at. But I think ultimately what gets in the way, and you mentioned this, Patrick, is the movie's real lack of empathy. The thing that stops this from being like you mentioned, sort of a Marxist thing. And I say this as a socialist myself, it's not enough to diagnose what's wrong and how alienating modern society is. You have to respond to it with a sense of empathy and solidarity for other people that are suffering it and that and ultimately this is the real solution to the problem it's your relationships with other people that pull you out of this bullshit and i would recommend as an alternative to this show this uh this movie uh the tv show Lodge 49 which has a lot of the same sort of just soul crushing living in late capitalism sort of feeling but finds a way to to do a wholesome version of how you respond to that sort of broken world that you live in and it's ultimately loving and caring for and being cared for in return to other people that's really what it is it's giving a shit about people and giving them a reason to give a shit about you too and i think this movie is oh my god i just i'm i may be just ranting a little bit now but <laughs> it just feels like it doesn't quite get it you mentioned the Art of Self Defense, I guarantee that movie probably stuck the landing in a way this one didn't because it has hindsight and, you know, for all of this stuff and is probably a bit clearer with its messaging, but this one is still this is a this is an ugly messy soup with, you know, like beautiful things in it but also a lot of turds in this soup. Yeah. <laughs> and it's fascinating that this got made. It's fascinating this thing got a wide release. It's fascinating that this thing is so influential, with almost never getting brought up except by the worst people, and I think people absolutely should go watch this movie again and react to it. I I think there's so much here to react to, to sink your teeth into. I would be interesting to see what David Fincher thinks of this movie twenty one years on. Yeah, no kidding. I, I there's there's something here, so. Oh, man. And I, I just have one on last one
0: last thing that I was thinking about with this movie is I was trying to think of a, of a parallel movie in the last couple years that uh, could have sort of been decried as as indefensible in the same way that it was when it was released. And the only movie that I could re- I could remember that evoked the same sort of reaction that I was thinking about was Rambo Last Blood Um And if it's a choice between watching Fight Club or Rambo Last Blood, it would be Fight
1: Club every time. Every time. And I haven't even seen Last Blood. I've just heard enough (laughs) to go, oh, this is like an angry Border Patrol. This is like the ICE version of Home Alone. (laughs) And I don't have time for it. But, oh, anyways, thank you for joining us, Mr. Patrick Johnson. Um, Uh, Always a pleasure. We love having you on and your input is always incredibly valuable. Are you working on anything right now that you wanna wanna promote? Uh I've got my
2: second vaccination coming up, so yes. oh. for that one. Oh, we look forward to that. Hey, that
0: means you'll be joining us in studio when we see you next. Oh
2: my god, I can't wait to yeah. Yeah. Gotta do something in the IRL real soon.
1: Nice. Real soon. We we hope to join you soon. So, again, thanks again, Patrick, and a special thank you to our episode sponsors. We have 15 of them at this moment. Uh, so, a special thank you to Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Dan Neidecker, Don Tuvey, Zuri Russell, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Wim the Belgian, Misa the Barbarian, James Brucker, Gus Lindgren, Jem Newman, Carol and Dave Brulette, and Calzone! So Thank you, you so become, much. Yeah, thank you, guys. Seriously. If, and if you want to become an episode sponsor, if you want to join that amazing crowd of people, if you want to join Project Mayhem, you don't <laughs> have to stand on our porch for three days without encouragement or food. <laughs> you just have to go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or click the big green button on radio versus the And until then, we will catch you folks
0: next month. Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey doran This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey doran and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Movi, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panchin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.
2: Do. You just want me to hit you. Come on, do me just one favor. Why?
1: Why? I don't know why. I don't know. I've never been in a fight. You? No, but th- that's a good thing. No, it is not. How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? I don't want to die without any scars. So come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Oh, God. This is crazy. So I- go crazy. Let her rip. Hey, I don't know about this. I don't either, but who gives a shit? No one's watching. What do you care?
2: Wait, what? this is crazy. You want me to hit you? That's right. What, like in the <laughs> face?
1: <laughs> Surprise me.
2: This is so fucking stupid. Oh.
1: Motherfucker! You hit me in the ear! Well, Jesus, I'm sorry. Ow! Why the ear, man? Oh, I fucked it up. No, that was perfect.